This session, we're going to look at one of the periods of histories that I've enjoyed reading about more than any other period. Unfortunately, my brain is already deteriorating and I'm tired. So I will not be able to give this subject the full justice that is due it. I do hope that you will at least find this interesting enough that you will go read about this more because this period from 1492 to 35 years later, the world took on a whole new shape. A whole new world was opened up. Literally, worlds were opened up. And it's a fascinating story of the men who explored new lands and conquered new people. How many of you have heard of Marco Polo? Marco. <laughs> he spent time, or so he claimed, in China. He traveled to the Orient, I think it was in the 1300s, might even been the 1200s. He came back, he was thrown in jail, and while he was in jail, he dictated stories of the Orient and what life was like and how he had spent time in one of the emperors, one of the cons, in his service. And he published a book that became a bestseller about the Orient. So he fired up Europeans' imagination about what it was like to get to go to Europe. The Crusades brought back to England a bunch of spices and amenities and foods that Europeans hadn't known of, but they acquired a taste from them. Now, a lot of these things, like oranges and some spices, cloves, were, cloves were more valuable than gold. But they were only available in the Orient, in the Spice Islands. Now, the overland route, if I can point this the right direction, went through Muslim territory which they guarded, which made it very dangerous and very costly. So people started wondering if it was possible to find an ocean route towards the Orient. They started right there. The Portuguese and Spanish people at the time had the, the best ships, the best technology, and, the, and enough wealth to pursue sea voyages. They started out by exploring down the African coast. Finally, around 1488, they sailed around the coast and they realized that might be a route. 1498, Vasco da Gama was the first person to make it to the Spice Islands. But it turned out to be a very costly trip. But it was a route that the Portuguese continued to pursue. Christopher Columbus, who I believe was Portuguese, he was hoping that the Portuguese king would fund his dream, which was sailing to the Orient, or to India, this way. He calculated based on a verse in the Apocrypha that Japan was about 3,000 miles away. He was off by about 8,000 miles. But thankfully, North America was in the way or Columbus would have sailed a long time. His Portuguese king did not give him the funds to do this. 
But he went to Ferdinand and Isabella. They gave him, of course, three ships. This is pretty common history. But it doesn't, even though it's common history, the story of men sailing for a month into the unknown in a small ship never fails to lose its mystique. Because these were medieval men. A lot of the sailors would have been uneducated men. They were going into scary territory based on legends of, of sea monsters, maybe sailing off the edge of the world. A lot of educated people believed the world was round, but a lot of the sailors, who knows what they were thinking as they sailed on. And of course, very dramatically, they threatened mutiny, and Columbus asked for just a few more days, and finally one night they, they spotted land, which Columbus to his dying day thought was India which is why they called the natives Indians. And that is, of course, stuck. Columbus claimed the land for Spain. He went back. Columbus ended up making four, village, four voyages. Now, Columbus is a fascinating man. He was a very devout religious man. He knew the Latin Vulgate very well, very familiar with scripture. He saw in Isaiah's, one of Isaiah's prophecy about taking the knowledge of God, he thought that was referring to him. He thought he was fulfilling prophecy. He wrote in his journal and his public declaration that he was hoping to take the light of Christ to, the new, to new lands. Columbus also believed that the end of the world was coming very shortly, and he believed that part of what would usher in the end of the world was a crusade that would take Jerusalem. And something, one of the main reasons that Columbus wanted so much gold, aside from being greedy for himself, he wanted enough gold so that he could find an ultimate crusade that would free Jerusalem. Columbus ended up dying fighting legal battles for more gold. He's a fascinating man, but also a, a tragic figure. A few years later, a man by the name of Amerigo Vespucci, Vespucci uh, continued to discover more of North America, and a map maker, Martin Waldemir something, when he started writing the first maps of the New World, named it America after Amerigo instead of after Columbus, and that is how we got the name North America. Now. What happened when Columbus first set foot on the New World? He brought the horse for the first time to North America. And he also, for the first time, discovered the potato, which was a South American thing, which no European. So what we have when Columbus stepped on the land was the potato meeting the horse, and thus the Big Mac and Fries was born. <laughs> Now, as soon as the Spanish set up camp on the New World, it was a terrible tragedy for the natives. You have to remember, many of these Spaniards who came to the New World were fresh off crusades. So their mindset was, we need to advance the gospel by force of arms. And they had a very militant view of how they were going to spread the gospel. 
as they continued to march inland and conquer new areas. The Pope gave this order that whenever they approached a new village of Native Americans or Indians, they had to read what was called the Requiremento, which said the basics of the gospel. It said our Holy Father has given this land to us and that you now have to give all your lands to our King Charles V. And if you do this, you will have peace. If you, do, if you don't convert to our God, we will kill you and wipe you out and it will be your fault. They sometimes would read these at a distance where they could hardly hear this requirement. And when they did, they didn't know English, so it was, yeah. And I, other times, when the kings actually did, or these native chiefs did receive the message, they said, your pope must be drunk. What kind of a man can just give away someone else's land? Saw one person say, we should celebrate Christopher Columbus Day by going across to next door and rocking on the front door and saying, I claim this house for myself. <laughs> now, the natives who listened to the requiremento and converted, some natives did convert. For one reason, it seemed like this Christian God was more powerful than their God because he had just conquered them. But these natives who converted were not allowed to be enslaved. Well, it's, the Spanish couldn't have, I, you know, they didn't want to do the work themselves. So how do you get around this idea that we can't enslave the peoples who've converted? What they did was they came up with a system called the encomienda, encomienda. It was a system of trust. Basically what it said was that when you went over there as a settler and set up your colony, a group of Native Americans would be given to you in trust. You would educate them and teach them the gospel, and they would in turn serve you and do whatever you wanted for them. Whatever you wanted them to do, they would be forced to do. This ended up being worse than slavery in a lot of ways. Because at least with slavery, you've put out an investment, and you at least want to take care of it. Just like when you've spent a lot of money on a valuable horse, you want to take better care of it than the one that you've put no money for. So this ended up being like free slavery. Thankfully, there were some men who started preaching out against this. Bartolomo, Bartolomo de la Casas, he chronicled the horrors of what was happening to these Native Americans in, in Cuba and later Central America. It was absolutely heartbreaking to read how cruelly these people were treated. So they were not only killed and ripped apart by dogs, but these new world people brought diseases that decimated. The Holocaust numbers of what happened to Native Americans are unreal. 1500, there was about 40 million Native Americans. By 1700, there was only 5 million. 90% had been wiped out. Some of these other statistics, Hispaniola, where Columbus landed, 500, no, 100,000 people there. 50 years later, there was only 500. In Mexico, 
23 million. 75 years later, 1.4 million natives. In Peru, 9 million. 70, 50 years later, 1.3. That is mind-boggling statistics. Then the Spanish people started bringing in boatloads of black slaves. And that is why, if you've ever been to the Caribbean, it's mostly black people, because the black people took over the Native American population. The blacks were worth, they figured, four Native Americans as far as slave work. For one, they were more disease resistant. They'd, been, they'd already encountered the old world diseases. And they also knew how to manage horses, something the Native Americans didn't know how. The Native Americans were terrified when they saw the horse. Right around this time, some of the most enthralling books that I've read are about two men. One is Fernando Cortez, who I'm going to tell his story briefly, who conquered Mexico. The other man is Magellan, who led the first expedition around the world. I'm going to start by telling the story of Cortez. They happened almost simultaneously, right around 1519 to 1521. Cortez was trained as a lawyer in Castile, which is, if you can see that, right on the edge of Spain. I need to quickly point out, too, there's a line right here that the Pope, very graciously, he knew that Portugal and Spain were in land battles for the world. The Pope being Spanish, he said, the Spanish can have everything to the west of this parallel. Yeah, and he said, the Portuguese get everything this way. And that's actually why in Brazil here, Portuguese is spoken, where in all the rest, Spanish is spoken. But Cortez, he came right around in Cuba. A man by the name of Velazquez was the emperor of Cuba. The emperor, the governor of Cuba. Velazquez appointed Cortez on an expedition to the mainland where he was supposed to set up trade relations with Native Americans. So Cortez got about 11 ships and I think four or 500 men. And he started on this expedition, but just before he left, Velasquez had a change of heart, saying no. I, he, I don't know if he mistrusted Cortez's motives or what, but he said, I'm no longer authorizing you on this mission. Cortez said it's too late, and he sailed away without Velasquez's approval, which at this point made Cortez a mutineer because he had explicitly rejected orders. He landed on Cos an island around Cozumel where he tried to evangelize the natives. While he was there, he heard about two white men on the mainland. Turned out that they were de Aguilera, and Guerrero. They were Spanish men who were shipwrecked there eight years earlier, in 1511. Guerrero had fallen in love with a Mayan woman and married her. This was, the Aztecs had taken over the majority of the rule of Mexico, but on the edge there, there was still the remnants of the Mayan population. So 
Carrero married the Mayan. He had already three kids at, the point, at this point, and so he stayed behind, and he ended up fighting for the Mayans against the Spanish oppressors. But Aguilera learned the Mayan language and joined him as Cortez as a translator. He continued on towards where it is now Veracruz. He conquered the natives there, and he actually freed a, a princess from another tribe named Malinche, or, or Donna Maria, as she's called. She ended up being his mistress, but she also knew the Aztec languages. So from this point on, Cortez had two translators. Malinche knew the Aztec languages, so the Aztec person would tell Malinche, who would then translate it into Mayan, into Aguilera, and then Aguilera would then translate the Mayan into Spanish, so Cortez could understand. But as Cortez was trying to evangelize, you can only imagine how distorted the Christian message must have actually been after it went through Mayan and then Aztec. When neither Aguilar or Malinche knew theological terms. So here they were talking about God and Jesus and salvation, evangelizing these people. But what Cortez did at Veracruz was he set up a colony there. He named his men part of a council, and he said, elect me governor. So they elected him governor, which was Cortez's attempt to legitimize this whole expedition. Velazquez had used the same approach when he became the governor of Cuba. So now Cortez is officially governor, and this whole conquest is legitimized. He convinced a bunch of Chempoalan chiefs to join him. Tenochtitlan was where Mexico City is now, was ruled by Montezuma, a very powerful Aztec emperor. Um, Mexico, uh, Tenochtitlan was probably the second largest city in the world of about anywhere from 100,000 to 300,000, huge by medieval standards. But these Aztec rulers had human sacrifices and they would march into other countries and demand as tribute the best of their young men and they would just slaughter thousands of men human sacrifice every year so it wasn't too hard to convince some of these other chiefs to join them in a rebellion Montezuma heard about these new strange men who rode horses and wore pale men who wore armor and he thought this was the fulfillment of a prophecy that this year is actually the same year in the Aztec calendar their god Quetzalcoatl was going to return either himself or send emissaries and they were going to be pale bearded men from the east which is exactly what Cortez was now in Tenochtitlan there was apparently warnings signs strange seeing strange things in the stars there was women who were having nightmares saying flee for your lives the end is near but Cortez was gathering Ch Chempoalan chiefs and getting also amassing a bunch of natives as they did the grunt work as he marched towards Mexico City Montezuma sent some emissaries and Cortez gave them a fireworks display showing them what the harvest and other cannons could do and the horses. These men 
went back to Montezuma and said, it's pretty amazing what these new people have. And he said, well, here, send a bunch of gold to them. Maybe we can convince them to stop their march. But Cortez, when he saw the gold, was only inspired to press on further. He actually said, my men and I have a disease of the heart that only gold can cure. So he marched on with the Chempawalan chiefs, and they came to another group of Aztecs who were at war, but they were the Tlaxcalans, who were under tribute to the Aztecs. In this first battle with the Tlaxcalans, they were, Cortez and his men were number, outnumbered about 100 to 1, but somehow Cortez's men with his armor and with his horses and with his guns were able to survive. And it kind of led to the rumor that Cortez's men were immortal. But they talked to the Tlaxcalans and they made an agreement. Will you join us? So Cortez was gradually gaining more men to fight against Montezuma when he got there. As he got closer to Tenochtitlan, the Aztec emissaries, men of Montezuma, who were traveling with them and constantly sending runners back and forth, they were acting as spies to Montezuma, they directed him to Cholula, Cholulu. It was an Aztec city. It was a religious center for the Aztecs. They had a pyramid there that was bigger in volume than the Great Pyramids in Egypt. Not as tall, but bigger in volume. But while Cortez and his men were there, they heard rumors that the Cholulan chiefs were going to massacre Cortez and his men. And Malinchi talked to one of the ruler's wives, and they said, yes, they're planning to murder him in the sleep. So at this point, Cortez put out a preemptive strike, and he killed thousands of Cholulans and burned the city, just wiped it out. He and his men said they killed about 30,000 but Spanish accounts are a little bit suspect because they were like to exaggerate. But still, if it was three to 5,000 people like, just like that, it was an incredible butcher job. Cortez continued to travel through the mountains. His poor men on the coast were so, it was so hot in their armor. They were covered with mosquitoes. But as they started traveling through the mountains, it became so freezing cold. And these poor native Indians from the coast were not used to this cold. They weren't dressed for it, and they were getting sick. But Cortez marched on. And it must have just been the most amazing experience because they, cropped, they peeked over one mountain, and there was Tenochtitlan, which was apparently a gorgeous white city on a, on a lake. It was just a breathtakingly beautiful city. Montezuma met them. And Cortez read the requirement. At this point, Montezuma, I don't know if he was just humoring Cortez or what, but he said, yeah, I will meet your requirements and I will swear fealty, which was a feudal term of surrender service to Charles V. Cortez said, I require that you remove your idols from your temples, that you wipe all this blood off the walls, you clean it up, and that you put in a shrine to St. Christopher, which was not Christopher Columbus, and also a shrine to Mary. At this point, Cortez kidnapped Montezuma and set 
Montezuma just became a puppet ruler, and Cortez was ruling the Aztec people through Montezuma. Now, around here, around now, Cortez heard a rumor that Velazquez, the governor of Cuba, had sent about 900 men to come punish Cortez. Earlier in this mission, I forgot to mention that Cortez had scuttled his ships, which meant he sunk all of them except for one. That one ship he sent back full of gold for Charles V, hoping that Charles V would accept his claim to be the governor of, of Mexico. But somehow this ship must have made a detour and stopped at Cuba, and that was when Velazquez found out about the treachery of Cortez. So Cortez left about 160 men in Tenochtitlan, and this was, some people think, the most daring part of Cortez's mission. He went back to, it was the, Narvars, Narvez was the one who had brought the 900 men. He attacked Narvez in the middle of the night with his few men. Narvez lost his eye in the process. And Cortez started telling the Spaniards who had come about all the gold that they had found in Tenochtitlan. And that if they joined him in helping him conquer, they would be richly rewarded. So he was able to, to bring in all of Narvez men. He marched back to Tenochtitlan and he found that Alvarado was the name of the man that he had left behind, was under siege by some very angry Aztecs. Turned out Alvarado had murdered a bunch of the Aztec rulers during a religious festival and was under siege. The Aztec people were not happy. Cortez took Montezuma. He said, Just tell your people what's happening. Try to reason with them. Montezuma tried to do that, but the natives were so angry that they stoned Montezuma, and he died in the process. So Cortez and his men, who were under siege, realized they have to get out. They made a daring escape plan where they waited for a rainy night. They made a, a portable bridge, and they were going to put it down, because it was, it was surrounded by water, and they were hoping they could sneak out somehow in the middle of the night. What's crazy is on the night of their escape, the men were plundering the temple, filling their pockets with gold. Here they were fleeing for their lives and they're weighing, weighing themselves down with gold. That's the insatiable greed these men had. They put the bridge down and they were escaping in the thick mist and the fog when the Aztecs discovered them and sounded the raid. And they just, the Aztecs began a slaughter of Cortez's men. They went to try to lift the bridge up and carry it, but it was stuck in the mud. So they just continued to try to swim across what they could. Cortez, I think he lost about half of his men. Just tons of them were butchered by the Aztecs. Cortez called it Noche Triste, or the Night of Tears. At this point, the Tlaxcalans who had aligned themselves with Cortez knew that there was severe repercussions coming from the Aztec people. Montezuma's, I think it was his son or brother, had took over. So they knew they basically had to fight for his life. So Cortez and his men healed, and they started conquering smaller Aztec cities and joining up with other Tlaxcalan chiefs and anybody they could, and they were gradually building a bigger army. Cortes thought, I think I can take Tenochtitlan the waterway. So they built a bunch of ships, disassembled them, and they carried them across land. Apparently, if you would <laughs> look from the sky, you would have seen this long snake of wood going through the Mexican mountains. 
they assembled these boats about a mile inland, and then they dug a trench the whole mile that they could flood, and they sailed the boats into Tenochtitlan. All the while, they started putting Tenochtitlan under siege. Around now, the plague started wiping out the Aztecs from inside. The, the soldiers, the Spaniards, had spent enough time there and infected enough of them, and they, they were just losing tens of thousands of people, dying daily. I mean, suddenly, the Aztec people there must have thought about those omens that had happened before with the women. Here, here was the end of the world. Everybody's dying of a plague. Your city's under siege. There's no fresh resources coming in. People are starving. They, they had Spanish, seven Spanish, 70 Spanish men, so they cut off out their hearts while they were alive to sacrifice and attempt to appease their gods. Just very noble people, but very barbaric in the way their views on human sacrifice. But Cortez and his men marched in there and Cortez had really wanted to preserve Mexico City as a crown jewel to give Charles V. But by this point, all he could do was destroy it. And so, unbelievably, a single Spaniard and a handful of men and 19 horses conquered a dynasty of millions of people. An amazing story. There are some terrific books. One of them is mentioned there. This is a riveting story. What it was like to enter, enter this new world. So that's Cortez. Around the same time, Magellan, he believed that if he could just find the passage through here, people looked for a couple hundred years. They called it the Northwest Passage a water route where they could get beyond this landmass, somehow just be able to sail a ship through. He thought India was just, just a little bit further. So Magellan set out with five ships and 260 men. Three years later, a skeleton of a ship with 18 sickly men arrived back in the ports of Spain. The ship were loaded. Somewhere along those three years, Magellan's eight, 18 of Magellan's 260 men had managed to sail around the world, find the Spice Islands, and come back with enough spices to make the trip worthwhile. Thankfully, one of the 18 men on the ship was named Pigafetta, who, and that's not what I'm thankful for. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm thankful for was that he was someone who studied other people groups and was a linguist. And he was writing down every detail he could about the people that he encountered. I'll give you just some of the highlights of this trip. He, uh, at this point, it took him several months and it was, it was close to winter and his men were already fed up with this idea. It was the captains who had who were the visionaries. The soldiers found, the common people, the sailors, found life on ships very difficult. The food was terrible. It was terrible when you needed to go number two, because the only way you could do it was they had this little 
uh, seat on the edge of the ship and you'd have to go climb out onto the edge and hang on to something, hope for nature to take its place quickly, and then get back on the boat. Now, when you needed to go during a storm, when the boat was really tipping, it was a terrifying experience. <laughs> Many people didn't make it. <laughs> so, life on the ocean was miserable, just to give you a tiny taste. And at this point, several of Cortez's men were planning mutiny. And when Cortez was, Cortez, Magellan, Magellan, Magellan. We're done with Cortez for a little while. Magellan's men had three of his ships, of his five ships, had turned against him and were planning mutiny. What Magellan did was he took one of his ships he planned a nighttime ambush where he conquered the ship. He put the leader at night under knife and was able to reclaim that ship. So now it was three ships against two. One ship turned around and went back. Another ship, they, they conquered it, but they took the, the ruler or the, the main captain, I'm an expert in seafaring terminology. <laughs> the captain, they put him ashore somewhere around there and they left him there. And nobody knows what happened to him. I'm assuming he's dead by now. <laughs> but finally, Magellan found a sign that said Strait of Magellan this way. What a coincidence. So he sailed with his men for about a month around wintry, stormy waters. It looks like just this little part on the map. It took him a month to navigate a few hundred miles of windy water. But Cortez Magellan, new story, had made it through here, and he thought, good. As soon as he hit this Pacific water, it was peaceful. Pacific, it meant peaceful water. And they thought, this is amazing. The winds at our back, we're making terrific speed. We're going to be in India in no time at all. And they sailed, and they sailed, and they sailed, and they sailed. Three months, they continued to sail. Nothing but blue. At the, <laughs> the men had terrible cases of scurvy, which is where your teeth fall out, and you get terribly sick. If they found a rat somewhere that would survive, this was gold. They were boiling the leather, any bit of leather on books or shoes or straps. The little bit of food that they had was worse than the leather. Leather was more all appealing. But they continued to sail. They had nowhere else to go. So finally, three months later, they hit an island. And these natives came up and they started just stealing from them, and they couldn't understand why these men were doing this. But they went ashore. It turns out these people were just like to share everything, <laughs> including what other people had. <laughs> so once Magellan's men were on shore, they were very generous. And finally, his men were able to heal. And they were able to receive the fruits that healed their bodies. And to make a long story shorter, they continued on to the Philippines. It was in the Philippines that Magellan was killed by some chiefs that didn't want the people converting to Christianity. 
He was killed by wooden spears. He had guns and, and armor, but he was just overwhelmed by the amounts of natives who were attacking him. And gradually, it, would, it just dwindled down to the 18 men left in the tattered ship named Victoria. It's just a taste of what is a fascinating story of what it was like for those men, what they endured traveling on into the unknown. Wow, I'm not very good at time management here. I'm going to talk quickly about the Jesuit missionary efforts. Francis Xavier, who was a friend of Ignatius of Loyola, he actually brought the gospel to Japan and was very successful. By the end of the 1500s, there was something like 300,000 Christians in Japan. There were several hundred churches. There was even two Christian universities. By the beginning of the 1600s, the Japanese leaders were afraid of foreign influence, and they outlawed Christianity. Thousands of them were murdered. The Christians were martyred there, and they gradually disappeared again. Uh, I want to mention two Jesuit priests. The Jesuits were very educated. I want to talk about one by the name of Pedro Claver, an amazing story. He added to his vows when he became a full-fledged Jesuit, slave to the black people. And when he came to Colombia, he dedicated his life to the service of black people there. When a new shipment of slaves would come in, he would go down into the hole. He would first of all take away the dead bodies. He would clean them up. He would bring food, water. He would bring them the gospel. He had bought slaves for the sake of freeing them so that he could use them as interpreters, so that he could reach these, these new black slaves that were coming. He would sometimes use the, he used the simplest pictures possible to communicate the gospel. He would use the picture of a snake shedding its skin for how when you became a, just like the snake leaves his old skin behind, person who becomes a Christian leaves his old life behind. Or we'd use the water to talk about the waters of baptism. Or he'd fold a, a napkin in three parts to teach them the doctrine of the Trinity. When plagues, when, there, when these black people had diseases, he was fearlessly went in there, cleaned them up, took care of them. He went to the leper colonies where nobody else would dare go and spent time tending their wounds. Finally, though, he contracted one of these illnesses and it was a very painful death, and he was put into the care of a black slave who had been treated poorly by white people. And this black person had a lot of anger towards white people. And he mistreated Pedro Claver during his last days. The man who had given his life to reaching out and serving the black people was now it's such a picture of Christ, how Christ came to give, and he took on the consequences of sins. Pedro Claver, in the same act of selfish love, I mean of self-sacrificial love, was receiving the consequences of his other people's sins. As he was dying, people started to realize, you know what, we have a saint who is dying. His relics are going to be worth something. 
So while he was dying, they took his house and robbed everything he had. He died in his own filth, alone, without anything. Amazing story of someone who just completely gave his life for these people. Another Jesuit missionary I want to talk about is, his name is John de Brebeuf. John de Brebeuf. He was a missionary to the Hurons, I think, in the early part of the 1600s. He had good success among the Hurons. The Hurons were friendly. A lot of people saw the Native Americans as less than human. Some Spanish theologians had actually said, this, is, this whole question of slavery, it's ridiculous. God made them inferior to us. They should be our slaves. But John de Brebeuf said, no, these are people that Christ died for. They deserve equal dignity. And so he would eat Huron food, even though it was repulsive to his more refined European tastes, did everything he could to put the olive branch of friendship out. He translated the hymns that he knew into the Huron language, so he thought that was a good way to teach memorable aspects of the gospel. The Iroquois, though, were a vicious people, were not as friendly as the Hurons. They captured John de Brebeuf, and they tortured him. They mocked his baptism by pouring scalding water on him. They put a burning belt, they put a belt around his waist of cloth and set it on fire, all the while he was tied up. They, he was still, as he was being tortured, preaching encouragement to the other Huron people who knew him. So they poured boiling, they took out his tongue and they put a burning iron down his throat so he couldn't do that anymore. Then while he was alive, they cut off strips of flesh while he was still alive. And they were so amazed because this whole time he never acted out in anger. The Iroquois were so impressed that they, after he was died, they cut out his heart and ate it. They were hoping that they would, could get his kind of courage. Amazing. <clears throat> that is, in a nutshell, the history of ex exploration and exploitation. There was another group of Jesuits down here in Paraguay who, in the 1600s, they set up colonies that were completely for the benefit of the native people. They taught them music, they taught them how to survive, they taught the gospel to them in a very humane way. These were very popular. But the Portuguese came in and they would attack these villages of these colonies and take slaves from them. So the, the Jesuits, they moved these colonies deeper into the jungle, hoping that that would free them. When that didn't work, these Jesuits actually trained the natives to defend themselves, to fight the Spanish or the Portuguese who were coming in. Unfortunately, though, in the 1700s, the Jesuits were falling out of favor around Europe. They were being accused of being too politically minded, that they were dangerous to the stability of a country. And so the order was dissolved and all the Jesuits were recalled from South America. And the 
the Native Americans down there are so sad to see these Jesuit leaders leave. And eventually disease and these colonies just kind of disappeared into the ground. Although Paraguay is the only place in South America where the native Guarani language is spoken. They did manage to preserve the native language. Everywhere else it's a, an import language that is spoken. I now want to talk about the attempts to settle this eastern seaboard of North America. Spaniards had come up, they had sent missionaries, different exploring ways. They'd sent up Spanish missions. That's why uh, California and Texas have a lot of Spanish sounding names because it was Spanish who settled that area. The first attempts to establish colonies were very difficult. Sir Walter Raleigh, under Queen Elizabeth, had authorized some men to establish a colony somewhere along here. John White, I believe his name was, was the governor. They had so much trouble with food and Indian attacks, so that he said, I need to go back to England for help. His granddaughter was the first Caucasian born in North America. He left his daughter and his granddaughter there. He went back to England to get help. It was right around this time, though, that the English were fighting the Spanish Armada. So it took him two years before he was able to get back. When he came back, this was mid-1580s, when he came back, there was not a single trace of the colony. No bones, nothing. All he could find was the letter C-R-O-A carved into the tree. Nobody ever knows what happened to the rest of Sir Walty's men. The, the town they had tried to establish was called Raleigh, the city of Raleigh. In 1607, the Virginia Company, named after the Virginia Queen, attempted to establish another colony. Just a second, let me change the map. Somewhere along there. They had sailed 40 miles inland. They claimed that this was an expedition to bring the gospel to the natives. But they didn't send any family men and they didn't send any women. They only sent 144 men and only one minister, Anglican minister. There was rumors that the natives used chamber pots of gold. That's how common gold was supposed to be in the New World. So lots of men who couldn't make it financially settled. They signed me up for this expedition, the get-rich-quick scheme. But this Virginia colony encountered so many difficulties. That first year, they had malaria. Nobody wanted to work. The gentlemen who came didn't want to have to plant. They were hoping to explore. Roger Hunt was the pastor. He was urging the men, look, if we're going to make this work, everybody needs to pull together here. John Smith, you may have heard of him. Come fall, they only had about two weeks left of food, so he said, let's go steal it from the Indians. He was caught and brought before Powhatan, who was about to execute him, 
when John Smith tried to do some fast talking. He pulled out a compass, said this little thing has a spirit in it that always seeks the North Star, told him about the great lands that lived on the other side of the ocean. Powhatan was very amused by this, and for some reason, probably much to his regret, he decided to save John Smith's life. John Smith, meanwhile, loved to write about his exploits and embellish them. And this is where he included the story of this foxy Indian 13-year-old who had put herself over him, put her body over his head and said, if you kill him, Father, you have to kill me first. And that was Pocahontas. Now, they doubt that that is, was what happened. Pocahontas was a real character. But whatever the case, John Smith was allowed to live, and he continued to harass the Indians. It was because of the Indians, though, that this Virginia company survived at all. The next year, nine out of ten people who came died. The third fall, all, back home in Europe, in Europe, though, I mean in England, there was a great cover-up going on. They were talking about how wonderful these new lands were. They were trying to hide that this the men were dying and it was miserable there and these lazy men did never figure it out that if we moved our colony further inland we could actually find fresh water and get out of the swamps. John Smith as he explored, he was always healthy in the summer but the men in the Virginia colony were always sick. They never, I don't know if they'd figured out or if they were just too lazy to move but they continued to die. And these people who had read this England propaganda, where they showed up in Virginia and saw how sickly everybody was, they were shocked. And whenever these people came, nobody brought enough provisions. So it always, if they did have some provisions, these new shipment of settlers decreased what they had. So people were, were starving to death and dying. On the third year, England sent nine ships and over 500 people, women and children, they were going to finally just send so many people to this Virginia colony that they would make it work. Well, around the, in the Bermuda Triangle there, there was a hurricane that separated some of the ships. It, one ship sunk, the flagship that had General Gates, who was supposed to take over the control of Virginia. His men, his boat was fatally ruined and they went to Bermuda where they spent nine comfortable months eating fruit and they assembled two ships using wood from the island and using the fittings from the ship that it went down. The other seven ships that contained, had 460 people left their instructions were that if your ships were separated, go to Bermuda, reassemble there. But they continued on, they limped into Virginia and dropped them off in the fall. 460 people. That winter is known as the starving period in 1610. Things got so bad that unthinkable atrocities were committed. They were to the point of digging up graves to eat food. One man snapped and killed his wife and was starting to eat her before he was discovered. Anything edible, leather again, they tried. Cold. When Gates and Summers came with their men, with these new ships, they came into the Virginia port. 
they were shocked. There's supposed to be over 500 healthy, thriving people, and all that met them was 66 gaunt skeletons of people. So what happened? That's all that was left. Everybody else had starved to death. Brutal. So he said, look, everybody on the ship, we're calling it quits. And he started to sail back to England. But right at this time, another shipment, manned by Sir D. Loire, which is for the state Delaware, but it's named after. Sir D. Loire said, no, we're turning back. We're going to make this colony work. And he tried to run a tight ship. After a year, he gave up and went back home. A man by the name of Thomas Dale, he came the next year, and he set up a dictatorship where you weren't allowed to miss church, you weren't allowed to blaspheme, you weren't allowed to swear, and everybody was forced to work. He was going to make this work. It was right around this time that they had a dispute with the, with the natives. His white people had kidnapped Pocahontas and were going to use her as leverage to get more food from the Indians because that's a lot easier than actually having to develop it yourself. <coughs> but a man by the name of John Rolfe had fallen in love with Pocahontas. And right during the negotiations, he asked, he said, I'd like to marry Pocahontas. And this pleased both Powhat Powhatan and Thomas Dale, and there was a big wedding ceremony and it brought some peace between the natives and um, English. John Rolfe took Pocahontas back to London where she was the belle of the ball. People were fascinated by a real live Native American maiden. She was a Christian, but she contracted a, one of the New World diseases and died on the way back home. Okay.